Hey guys, how are you? Better late than never, they said. Try the nine o'clock hour today. We did try the eight o'clock yesterday and it was good. I think I moved it up to nine to see if we get a lot more listeners. It was funny, I was thinking, why would it ever put it at seven o'clock? It's so early. People are just getting home. They're not really having any time to relax. So I said, move it to eight. And then today, just for today, we'll do a trial to see how the nine o'clock hour pans out. Anyways, welcome to Strange Days. This is our live portion of the show. I am your host, Doc, bringing you the weird, the odd, and the strange from the internet folklore. Yesterday, I had some fun reading some of the less-known Japanese urban legends, and I think today we're going to continue with our motif of uh, Japanese urban legends, and then we'll move on uh, maybe to another country. We'll try different countries and different urban legends. You are free to call or actually join us live on the studio, which will be appreciated. And I'll be sharing um, our StreamYard link here in a minute, so you guys can, if you guys wish, you can come in and we can discuss different things. Our friend Horsehair is here. It's 5 a.m. Just back from around. All right, man. I hope you had a good time. I know he's uh, from across the pond, I believe, uh, Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. Or could be England, one of those two little islands. And uh, he just went for a run. So, and I wish, uh, no, I don't like to do exercises. I'm not going to say I wish I went for a run. But it's good to have you here. Thank you. Otherwise, very uh, normal day, I should say, here in California. A little overcast. Uh, got to do some things after work, which is always appreciated. And I started watching another strange show. This show, I, I don't know what channel it is, but it, it's a it's a foreign show, a, a European somewhere, but they do speak English. Uh, it's about a, a a lady who is an astronaut, and uh, in the International Space Station, something happens in the space station, in which everybody has to evacuate. And I'm in chapter three, and it seems like uh, she's stuck in some kind of alternate reality. Pretty cool. Like I told you, I just got done washing. Um, the detective uh, show on HBO, the fourth the True Detective, the fourth season. If you guys want to catch that, that's a great show. Especially the fourth season, the fourth season that just aired. It has to do a lot with mystique and weird stuff and strangeness, and I think you guys would enjoy that. So let me turn the music just a little tad down. Uh, I always like to have stuff in the background. I think it's just kind of more enjoyable for me as I go on and read and um, let's see here if we can look for more Japanese urban legends all right so one second guys as I get ready to get started here it's a live show so okay so yesterday we discussed a few things the funny one that you guys said that the curse of the colonel and that had to do with a with a baseball team that after they won their equivalent of the World Series decided to get a statue of Colonel Sanders from a local Kentucky Fried Chicken and throw it into the river there in Japan. And ever since that occurred, the team went from winning first place to having losing seasons. And if I'm not mistaken, I saw a few years ago that they raised the statue. They were able to kind of drag it out of this muddy lake and they were able to bring it back to its former glory. I don't know too much about the record of the team after that. I don't know if the team actually improved or are still in a little slump. But, you know, baseball is funny that way. In fact, all sport 
it's funny like that they all have these things that they have to sort of abide by whether it be superstition or rituals and because um, you remember the the curse of the Bambino which was a curse placed on the Boston Red Sox when they transferred or they actually sold uh, their player Mr. Babe Ruth to their uh, rivals the Yankees Yankees went on to win and become very very successful while the Boston Red Sox took them about over 100 years almost there to to win we have horse hair here we have a visitor awesome I'm going to bring him on air hey man how are you Good, good. So, it's good to see you, my friend. You look, uh, you look thinner than you did from well, your, from your, from thinner. Your yeah, or or maybe you were thin, and I just had a, a headshot of, of you. So, um, seems like you're a healthy guy taking a run in the morning. What time did you? Uh, when did you go running today? Uh, your, oh time? well, um, it was about uh, I got up around top three, and then I went for a it was a bit rainy, so I waited a bit, so I braved this bit, so... No, that was a warm-up. I'm preparing for a 5K on Sunday. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I didn't catch it. You went running at what time? Uh, around 4 in the morning. Start. Oh, okay. Wow, that's pretty early, yeah. Do you mind if I bring you your picture live on the air, or you want to remain... Yeah, we're playing, we're playing. Yeah, I'm okay. just, just doing some nicotine gum. Another healthy kind of thing. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm David. doing good. I'm doing good, Horsehair. Good to see you, man. Yeah, um, cool. So, yeah, I, I, I've been trying different times here in California because um, I started doing the 7 o'clock originally because I had some uh, co-hosts that lived in the East Coast, so just to accommodate them. But I moved it up to 8 yesterday and I moved it up to 9, so we'll just see how it plays out. Oh, that's What's cool. Like, I, I went to bed about half eight. Like, getting up incredibly early lately. Like, uh, let's get this out. Like, a year ago, like, I was about the most unhealthiest person you can imagine. Like, it's like since lockdown, I was drinking consistently every day, quite a lot. So, I had a bit of a wake up call six months ago. And, uh, yeah, yeah. so, like, w when I last rang you, I was pretty in a bit of a kind of odd state. A lot of things going on, like, but yeah, like, things are pretty good now. Things are pretty good. Well, I'm happy for you, man. That, that's good. You live in a nice place. Looks like it's a... Are you a painter? You do paint? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it looks like there's, a painter's loft. Uh, yeah, there's few things everywhere. You know, here are the Bond girls. You know. Do you... Horsehair, before we... That's beautiful, man. Before we go on, um, do you mind... Do you have any headphones? So you, your voice comes in crisper? It's not, a, it's not too... Uh, headphones? I could actually to... sort something out there. You know, yeah. I do have, um, let me think. Um, sure, I could get back to you. Um, let me think. Uh, do yeah. you mind if I, I go off there for about um, five minutes? No, go ahead and, and join us. You have, okay, you have cool. Something. Okay, my friend. That was nice. Unexpected guest. I love that. Um yeah, so I, th you know, this is what I like about the show that is an unexpected, unplanned. Um, I think we're gonna have him on the air, and uh, we go we're gonna kind of review a little bit of his artworks. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to art. I, I it's what passion of mine. 
art in itself. I would say maybe, yeah, any kind of art, but uh, I'm very into impressionism, you know, pre and post impressionism, you know, from the 1700s to the, I mean, excuse me, from the 1870s to the probably the 1910s. That's kind of like the life, the, the life of the impressionistic movement. And then I'm, I like uh, Picasso a lot. My favorite artist was Van Gogh. But that stems, you know, I can I can tolerate a lot of art. I actually love art. I like going to museums, and it's amazing how they let you get close to these things that are so expensive. It's probably the closest you can get to um, something that sometimes can be intangible as far as money. And I've often wondered, I've often wondered if indeed the art pieces that hang on museums are the real deal, you know, or they're just amazing copies. If I was the owner of a museum and I had, let's say, 50, 70, 80, 80 Van Goghs hanging, I would be very careful um, because it looks so approachable. I mean, you can go ahead and touch these things and I would probably create replicas and keep the better, the real ones in the back. But that's just me. But I often wonder if museums ever do such things. Anyways, um, Thank you guys for listening to this new time slot at nine. It's um, it's an ever-changing game, if you will. You know, as we as we try to um, aim for our, our, our the most optimal time to where the people that listen to this sort of topics would would like to listen. And since I'm a West Coast show, I, I think that um, it's fair enough to air it at a later time as opposed to you know seven what i was doing before even though you could potentially listen to it while you're commuting home but seven o'clock people you know come home cook have to tend to their kids or just do other things anyways as we wait here for horse hair let's see what else we can uh let's see if we can maybe squeeze in a jap an urban legend from japan to kind of keep it the thought from the theme i just said from yesterday I'm going to try to rearrange my windows. Oh, he's back. Okay. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Um, okay, I'm just testing out. Um, yeah, like I was thinking of getting you on, like, I have the desktop over there, the whole recording stuff. Like, you know, there's mics here and much, so too much in high school. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, like, are, are you, you know, um, I do life is, myself. Is that mic connected to the phone that you're on? Um, I think you're on like a speaker. I, I got the headphones, so that won't like in, like your voice won't interfere with the mic. I'm no, no, no. What I'm that. saying, uh, the mic that you have, that you connect that I, I, I'm suspecting I'm on a phone right now. Correct? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus! Yeah, you're on a phone right now, but okay, um, the at the moment I'm also setting up the um, the real stuff. Like I've got like this, like. Mic setup, studio setup, right there. And I was thinking of like doing like real stuff. I do stuff for my live streaming stuff, just like music. Okay. So once, maybe in the maybe in the future, once you have the studio up and running, uh, you can call us. But uh, I, I don't want to miss this chance. Um, I, yeah. I think did you do an Art Bell piece in the back? I think I saw. I recognize like an Art I Bell. I recognize. Let me see. Yeah. Let me take a look at it. Yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal! Can you get a can you get a close up of that? That's really good work, man. Thanks, man. That is yeah. beautiful. 
Uh, what do you uh, use? Acrylics? Acrylics. Yeah. yeah. I like acrylics. You know, I like acrylics because they tend to dry faster than oils. Oh, of course. And you can just paint over them when you're kind of up for, like, you're not happy with it. Yeah. And another oh, yes. thing that I have, another thing that I like about acrylics is the fact that you can get like a chunkier sort of like a meaty stroke um, with more body in the painting than you can with uh, with some of the oils, you know. Well, I can tell you something about oils. They're they're quite tricky, and they're also banned. Uh, the ones I was using were banned in the state of California, so that's something oh. interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there's, a, I think, Proposition 65 or 64, uh, where they have yeah. lead containing. You know, most of these paints back in the day contain a lot of lead, right? Oh, like, like there are lots of, like, mediums out there that are now banned, like, especially in the print uh, industry. Right. Um, the there's, is, uh, yeah. A lot of these mediums did, you're aware that they contained a lot of lead, correct? Oh, no, oh. God knows what else it's. So where I'm going yeah. with this is where I'm going with this is the fact that you know if people that have usually high lead uh, concentrations in their blood, they can have a lot of uh, mental health related issues. So you know if you have our painters like a Van Gogh, right? They used to deal with like depression and hallucinations. Who would have known? He could have had maybe like a lead, a lead, uh, lead poisoning back in the day. He painted all day Ooh. long, right? Oh, well, it wasn't just that. It was the amount of absence he took, perhaps. Uh, yeah. You see, like it's, yes. like with Van Gogh, oh, Van Gogh it, it was yeah. like Van his Gogh. mental health yeah. problems would be rooted in quite a lot of things. He was training to become a minister, I believe. Um, he so he was preaching Lord Jesus or Savior, whatever, to uh, the well, the peasant class. So he was nicknamed the Christ of the coal mine because he refused to sleep in any beds and uh, so he slept on the floor. So he was really passionate about his work. Like, he was really into it, so into sort of it. Like that, your, sort, of yeah. like your Martin, sort of like your Martin Luther, you know? Oh, These he guys, was they would, well, they would, Yeah, they would flag themselves, they would hit themselves, they would do all kinds of penances until they realized they focus on the grace of God as opposed to the fact that you have to kind of undergo all this pain in vain. But uh, yeah, Yeah. I I was aware that he was uh, uh, going into the ministry and then he just, um, I don't know exactly what occurred, but that's when he, his painting uh, took precedence in his life. I, I say it was, yeah, oh yeah, I, I can talk for Ireland about Van Gogh, and, uh, you know, I, I, what, what I don't really, like, when I go into my painting, when I'm looking at other artists, I don't usually look at their paintings, what's important to me is have a look at how their lives spanned out, that's the yeah. important part, so it's all the backstories, all the, like, the mad stuff, like with Van Gogh and Paul Gauguin, um, they're escapades to the south of France and like Van Gogh's breakdown there being having to be well all that uh, there's like the missing year that's a certain aspect of the story where Paul yeah. had to bring his brother and rescue him and while well, he fled back to South America yeah so this I'm a huge I was telling people I'm a huge Van Gogh fan yeah. and um I actually been to Arles in, in the south of France. That's a city that's more predominantly recognized with a lot of his famous works. That's where he had his little mental breakdown. And so his original idea, believe it or not, was to create a commune of painters in the in the south that's of true. France. 
And so um, uh, Paul Gauguin was one of the first ones to arrive. You know, his idea was, I guess, to have a lot of painters there and to kind of commune, if you will. But uh, oh, you know, yeah. something went, you know, you know, indulging in, in alcohol or absinthe um, and prostitutes, right? Brothels, yeah, because syphilis yeah. was, you know, and all these oh, things, yeah. may, all these things can mess you with your mind. Basically, that tore the relationship apart between Gauguin and Van Gogh, and. As you know, Gauguin, after that, left for the South Seas. He has a lot of history in the South Seas. I think Tahiti is where he might he left to. Uh, but yeah, none of, you know, he was a dreamer, as most artists are. Um, but let me see some of your stuff. It looks very, I like it, man. I really do. Uh, let me think. Um, I'll just uh, like take, take you on a look here. Like, I make large-scale canvases, but... I want to make bigger, so I don't have quite space to stretch them all. Like some are uh, built, some are kind of. Um, um, like, you're very, you're very versatile in your style, man. Very versatile. I see a lot, a lot of trial and error. A lot of trial yeah. and error. Well, I, the, the yeah. first, the first, the first. Uh, I see a lot of, right behind you. I see a lot of different styles. The other yeah. side, yeah, right there. So that's uh, that's beautiful. Uh, the, even the colors you use are very kind of Gogon looking colors. Um, if you go to the right a little bit more, you have yeah, you have you have definitely man, you're very gifted. Yeah, beautiful. like um, like here was the thing. Um, uh, like our, uh, I'm still kind of not um, well headlining the arts world down here in this neck in the woods. No, I'm doing well. Like, the odd commission here is, is fine. Though, the, the lifestyle, like, originally, well, I was into drawing, like, sketching art and all that sure. stuff. Like, I, I didn't do any much painting when I was studying it. So I actually was self-taught in painting. It was really to do with drawing, sketching. That's mm -hmm. where my real thing lied and but one day i decided to get canvas too and um, I, I ended up like getting things for printing and printing started with Wait. this one this one's back in 2014 10 years was, ago yeah yes i love yeah they have it's a nice vivid color combination what do you yeah. are you in uh are you in ireland or are you in uh, england Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll blatantly state I'm an artist. Okay, perfect, yeah. Uh, it it seemed to me that your your accent was a little bit more con conductive of uh, being an Irishman as opposed to an Englishman. Oh, uh, my accent is kind of a bit odd because I come from a mixed background. Well, good, um, good for you. Yeah. Uh, there is, uh, like, I'm not as local, like, I wasn't born in a cabbage in my locality in that regard. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, so whenever someone asks me where I'm from, it's kind of a hard thing to say because, uh, like, man, my grandparents were all individual ones were born in different counties if, uh, and the other one a different country. So okay. it's kind of hard to say where I'm from, per se. Sure. No, that's that's a fair assessment of how you know everything is so globalized now that it's not yeah. as simple. You know, you take a you take a DNA test and you get like fifty different places where you could potentially be, or you carry the you carry the essence of about fifty different places. You know, 
Yeah, I do. Like, my cousin took one, and, like, we kind of had the same roots. And he found about 1% Native American in there. We don't really? know where that came from. It's possible. Like, um, you see, uh, my grandfather came from a country called Mauritius. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. That was the, I uh, mention that. That was the home of the dodo bird. Yes. Yes. Um, there was a, a distinctive mixture of nationalities there. So I'm kind of thinking the, the mixture, like, granted, it was Mauritian Creole. That's where my grandfather kind of originated. Now, he's very adamant about his French roots, but there was a bit mm -hmm. of African, there was a bit of Asian, as well as the European kind of roots there. Like, yeah, it's a lot of this speculation of how and why, but it's, it's kind of, um, well, certain aspects of it. It is easy speculation, but there's, like, a story about, um, about great, 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 great grandfather or something that uh, ends up having children with uh, an African concubine, had two children, a boy and a girl. One was given up to slavery, the other wasn't, and continued on that way. Like stories like that, I'm, um, so like my cousins have told me, but in, like in general, I'm not the most pure blood Irishman there is, granted. Like, but yeah. no one really is. Like, exactly. I have traced um, a lot of my other ancestry towards. Uh, other Europeans and like in Ireland there are there's a whole map of Ireland where you see all like the surnames of their areas around the country and you could find a few of your own names if you had your Irish roots and where exactly they originated sure so, oh, understood. yeah now I guess they the name your name uh, your your nickname horsehair that, that's probably applicable because of the type of brushes you like to use the horsehair brushes to paint it actually originates um, when I first tried to start my own podcast. Uh, I needed some kind of code name for it. It was just me recording over my own music. It, like, oh, and er earlier on that day, there was a family bonfire, and my father wanted to burn a mattress that was full of horse hair. And my brother was ordering him not to do because that would stink. So that's where the that's where the that's where the name I like the name it's very peculiar, yeah. peculiar and unique but it also lends itself to painting you know because I know they they sell horsehair brushes they're pr pretty pricey and uh, violin bows they're made of horsehair uh, they have a lot of actual uh, construction building materials so you can build them in plaster and all that. So do Probably. you have um you currently actively have a podcast or not yet? Uh, I wouldn't really call it a podcast. What I was doing was I was recording. I was recording. I was learning to record. I was recording lots of electronic music and all sorts of funky, weird stuff. Like just while near, and I so didn't want I, to. Um, where, yeah. where could somebody? Where do you have the? Do you have uh, this music available for like general public consumption? Where would I be able to find your stuff? Mostly on YouTube, man. And it's under it's, the same it's from name? my is channel. It, is yeah, it horse hair podcast. So if I go to YouTube, let me see here. So some of the listeners will maybe interested. So if I put horsehair podcast, oh, um, you can just go in the chat there and just click on my little comment there, and it, it should get to my channel. I'm not sure, but 
yeah horsehair podcasts are all one word Got yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I will share it with the listeners here. Uh, nice one, ahead. thank you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll go ahead and take a listen myself. So go ahead and join Horsehair here. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, forward slash, you know, youtube.com forward slash at Horsehair podcast. So I'll be uh, diving into that myself uh, in regards to uh, listening to music. I'm always... Uh, I've always liked different types of music, different styles, and uh, I would very... say, I would say, w- w- the whole point of why I had a podcast was I would speak over the music, so I, would, I get people to know it's my music rather than like paying um, a lot of money just to copyright it all. Like uh, it's a lot of it is pretty much on public domain, except for it has my annoying voice on it, kind of thing, but. You know, it's it's just one thing I, I I've done with my life. I've done it for years, and it's been all sorts of weather. I've been doing that. Like it's mostly on my own. Rarer times with other people as guests, but yeah, um, it, it's 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 not really the strangest thing about it is that when I'm speaking on my own, music is prompt, so I. Whether I've nothing to say, I kind of push a muscle where I speak anything. I, I could like confess anything, and that was something I was thinking about a while ago. Like I do these little like voiceover animations where I try to impersonate the, the little locals, uh, the, the, the no no the, the big locals like in like you know, I come from a rural background, so they kind of they can't speak like that. But yeah, so I was just yeah, kind of yeah, doing would... this mumbling voice when I was impersonating them. And when I was recording, we were listening back over it, I realized I was actually making sense, which was very scary. And I was kind of thinking, like, about the ideas is there other kind of consciousness that's living within our own minds, like another person in there? That was something yeah, I think it's just the. Into. I wouldn't. Yeah, it, it would. Uh, it's it's interesting. Interesting theories, uh, nonetheless. Well, good deal, man. Well, good to have you on the show. Whenever you yeah. get your studio set up, um, I would love to have you back. Maybe we can kind of discuss a certain type of topic. We can, uh, you know, we can meet off uh, off of. Uh, we can meet offline. You can. I know you have. You can reach me through the WhatsApp. Maybe we yeah, can yeah. We can uh, delve. Uh, create something uh for a for a show if you want we can talk about a topic that would be cool to have you on once you get your sound and everything up to par yeah cool cool, cool. um so oh um I, i'm just kind of um wondering about something uh it's it's about a certain idea of I, i'd love to talk to you about alternative consciousness Sure, that would be okay. We can do that. Um, yeah. Get your, send me a text when you're set up. Cool. Um, we'll, we'll chat a little bit about what you want to aim, and then we'll, we'll we'll hit it. That would be very cool, man. I would Mate. appreciate Mate. you doing okay. that. So fresh. All right, brother. Man. Well, ha- have a great nice. day. Thank you for joining us, buddy. Take care. Yeah. Right, take care, oh, man. Nice have a great one. have a great day, my friend. Oh. Take care. That was awesome. So. uh that was Mr. Horsehair, who's been here before. Magnificent art, magnificent, magnificent art in the back. And like I said, I'm a geek for art. I really enjoyed his art pieces in the back. He has a lot of talent. 
and I shared his channel in our comment section so you guys can come in and take a look at his uh, he's a, a trade uh, a jack of all trades he's a, he paints does music and animation very cool so I look forward to collaborating with him in the future in some kind of um, some kind of way you, you get to meet the nicest people uh, with uh, like minds when you explore uh, any kind of avenue or any kind of hobby but personally I believe that the paranormal just draws uh, people that are very like-minded seems to be that the paranormal people that are into the paranormal uh, are very nice individuals very open individuals or uh, you know as you can tell from the kind of stuff we discuss and people that are very humble so it's a great community I'm very happy to be part of and it's you know it's something that I've I had an inkling ever since I was little you know it's uh, sort of like you're born with this desire or this affinity or attraction to the unusual and uh, for sure, I can. That's how it happened to me. I remember the. I used to. Uh, my grandfather used to have a collection of comic books, and I always kind of gravitated towards like the scary comics or the the weird comics. And one time, I, I must have been like six or seven, and there was this book on the occult that had like a picture of Dracula on the front. And I asked my mom to buy it for me, and she's like, "Heck no! What do you mean the occult? No, that's not for you. You're too little." Okay, so our first story, kind of continuing the whole motif of Japan lore or Japan urban legends, it's called the Lavender Town. Lavender Town. Shiontao, Shiontown. Okay, so Shiontao, Shiontown. It's actually a fictional village in the 1996 video game Pokemon Red and Blue. I remember this video game. Uh, this is stylized as a haunted location within the game. Lavender Town is home to the Pokemon Tower, which is a burial ground for deceased Pokemons and a location to find, quote-unquote, ghost-type Pokemons. This is a true ghost in the machine, you know. You have Pokemon and then you can get ghost Pokemons. Um, the background music of Lavender Town is renowned for adding to the town's creepy atmosphere and is... Uh, the 19 and in the and in the night in the 2010s excuse me it gave rise to the lavender town syndrome which is a creepy pasta like we talked about before for those of you that don't know creepy pasta if you boil it down to like the the easiest uh description of what it is it's basically like our urban legends as kids you know kind of living in the ether creepy pasta are urban legends that arose or they live in the internet, you know, or arose in the internet, were born in the internet, as opposed to being born, you know, by by tales um, and shared in towns. It's like an internet phenomenon. So what is Lavender Town? It's basically a fictional story about a hundred of Japanese. It's a fictional story about a, a, a town within a video game, but the fictional story about hundreds of Japanese kids uh, deleting themselves after listening to this town to this track i'm sorry so you have a computer game within the computer game there's a haunted place where you can see haunted pokemons and there's a background music playing while you're in this level that according to urban legend in japan has cost hundreds of uh, japanese people to self-delete uh, after listening to this particular track Lavender Town is a village that can be visited and like I said again, Pokemon Red, that's one game, Pokemon Green, Pokemon Blue, Pokemon Yellow, and the sequels Pokemon Gold, Silver, and Crystal. 
and any kind of remake. So basically, Lavender Town is in all the video games, most of the video games. Um, a departure from the typical joyous tone of red, green, blue, and yellow. It is home to the Pokemon Tower. Again, this is a graveyard that was filled with morning trainers and 100 tombstones for deceased Pokemons. So a trainer would be the person that would, uh, if you're familiar with Pokemon, I don't need to explain to you, but those that are not, Pokemons are like guys within the video game that train these little animals that are called Pokemon in order for them to be able to fight and acquire power. So this is the, the graveyard of the of the game. It's an interesting concept. There are uh, playable or there are player characters that you can come across while playing at this level, um, which one of them is called uh, Ghastly and Hunter. Hunter, uh, Hunter, not as in a hunt, but as in a haunted, like a haunted mansion, Hunter. The tower is the only place where they are available for capture, so you can capture these Pokemon ghosts. During the story of red, green, blue, and yellow, the player will utilize the item Sylph Scope to deal with the ghost-type Pokemon. It is implied that the village is haunted by the spirit of dead Pokemon, and particularly a Marowak, uh, which is a murderer by the villainous with his Team Rocket. Okay, it's going too deep into the video game here. We're just going to keep it shallow. So the Pokemon Tower was replaced by the Kanto Radio Tower in Pokemon Gold and Silver. Although a smaller burial site called the House of Memories is now present in the place. Lavender Town is also home to the name Raider, which allows players to change the name of their Pokemon. All right. Um, so, yeah, so that's what, uh, that's what this, this urban legend is. Pretty interesting, huh? For the, this is a Japanese, more globalized now because they get, they, I remember... Pokemons, as we all have, um, there's always crazes, right? When I was, uh, sorry, I'm just typing some, just an idea. There's always crazes when, uh, when you think about it. Let's see, for my particular generation, there was the, the Cabbage Patch Kid doll craze. People would go, you know try to look for these dolls for Christmas and then you had uh, there was these things called pogs that people would play um, that was another kind of craze and so Pokemon was very powerful also and anything anything and everything but Pokemon would sell very well even back to the 70s a little before my time of uh, awareness that the, the pet rock whoever invented that is a genius you know sell rocks to people for an obscene amount of money just put a kind of like a decent type of packaging if you will and uh, there you had a, a pet rock so yes people if, if your mom if your parents if you're listening to the show and you're in your you're in your early 20s uh early 20s you know mid 20s and below your parents probably could have been born in there no that's still you have to be if you're in your 30s and 40s and your parents ever tell you, hey, you're wasting your money, ask them if they ever owned a pet rock. That would be a, a nice comeback for them. Anybody that spent money on a rock back in the day um, has to question their their management of money. So, yeah, when they get on your case for buying something expensive like that, did you ever own a pet rock? Okay, so I'm not wasting my money. That would be nice to your parents. 
the next thing that comes out of Japanese urban legend is called the Red Room Curse. Red Room Curse. It's an early Japanese internet urban legend. So that would be internet urban legend would kind of be what a creepypasta definition of creepypasta. Okay. And this is about a red pop-up ad which announces the forthcoming uh, passing of the person who encounters it on their computer screen. That's a lot of pressure, you know. You're surfing the internet, you're having fun, and in the back of your mind, you're always wondering if you're going to get the red room curse. It may have its origins in an Adobe Flash horror animation of the late 90s that tells the story of the legend. There are several variations of the Red Room Curse urban legend according to the most common ones. While browsing the internet, the victim will be presented with a red pop-up with black text, a black text saying, do you like dot, uh, do you like underscore or dash question mark. After trying to close it, the pop-up will reappear. This time the text saying, do you like the Red Room? Then the screen will turn red, displaying a list of names of the Red Room's victim. The target will sense a mysterious presence behind them, after which they will lose consciousness. They will later be found deleted in their home, with the walls of the room in which they are discovered painted red with blood. That would make a fun movie. I'm sure, you know, there's always rehashing old movies. Somebody out there... Uh, make a movie about the Red Room Curse, I think. It'll most likely be a, a hit. So how did this little urban legend originate? In the late 90s, a Japanese interactive Adobe Flash horror animation considered to be the origin of the Red Room Curse urban legend was uploaded to GeoCities. Oh my gosh, I haven't heard the name in years. This is uh, GeoCities. Later, Yahoo GeoCities was a hosting website that allowed users to create and publish websites for free. GeoCities, man, I haven't heard that in a while. I I told the story of a young boy who was cursed and passed away after seeing the pop-up. The legend of the curse gained notoriety in 2004 due to the Sisibo slashing, also known as the Nevadatan murder, was the murder uh, of a schoolgirl in Japan. Uh, actually, yeah, it was the deletion of a 12-year-old girl by an 11-year-old classmate in an elementary school in Sasebo. And actually, this little boy who committed the cram- crime was a fan of the Red Room Curse animation, having the video bookmarked on uh, her computer. So it was two females. Perpetrator and the victim were both uh, young females. At the time of the murder, she had the, this video bookmarked. The web page in question is currently inaccessible using conventional methods due to this discontinuation of GeoCities and Adobe Flash. Oh, okay, here we go. A short, like I, like I told you guys, I don't pre-read these things. So a lot of my suppositions as I'm talking to you and reading the articles, uh, seems like, you know, my train of thought goes right along with the writer because here it says that a short film titled, titled The Red Room Curse inspired by the urban legend was released in 2016 so if you're interested go in your youtube channel or youtube little guy there and type the red room curse and then see if you guys can watch the flick let me see if yeah so that's that's a red room what there's another urban legend in japan this was called the tiki tiki also spelled, uh, well, same spelling. Basically, it, it's either all together 
separated hyphenated. But the spelling is tiki tiki. This is a Japanese herbal legend about a ghost of a schoolgirl who was said to have fallen onto a railway line under the overpass where her body was cut in half by the train. She is an onryo. What is an onryo? Japanese traditional belief in literature, onryos are a type of ghost believed to be capable of causing harm in the world of the living, injury, injuring and deleting her enemies, or even causing natural disasters to exact revenge to the wrongs while she received well-being in life. So Tiki Tiki is supposed to be an, um, she's described as an onryo or a vengeful spirit who lurks in urban areas and around train stations at night. So she no longer has a lower body. She travels on her hands, dragging her upper torso and making a scratching or a tiki tiki sound when she moves, produced either by her elbows or the end of her bisected body scraping the ground, which would be her spine. Wow. If she encounters an individual, she will be chased. She would chase them and slice them in half at the waist, deleting them in such a way that mimics her own personal disfigurement. That is uh, interesting. Also, uh, adapt uh, should be adapted for a movie. So that was the Tiki Tiki from Spain. Um, from Spain, what am I thinking? From Japan, wake up. Let's see. We did uh, Japan, where else can we go? We've done, you know, we've done North America to ad nauseum. So... We did a little bit of Canada too. We spoke about the Oka Island money pit. Remember that one? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm just yeah. We also did the the Orang Medan. Remember that ship that that the or that ship that's uh, Malaysia. We did the monkey man, I believe, of Delhi. So we did cover some India as well. Let's see this one. This one looks pretty interesting. This is an urban legend that uh, has its origins in France. This is called The Vanishing Hotel Room. The Vanishing Hotel Room, also known as The Vanishing Lady, is an urban legend which claims that during an international exposition in Paris, a daughter left her mother in a hotel room. While she came back, her mother was gone and the hotel staff claimed to have no knowledge of the missing woman. Okay, so this is, yeah. So a daughter and a mom go to Paris. The daughter probably leaves town, goes shopping, goes sightseeing. The mom's a little bit tired, so she stays back. And when she comes back to the hotel, the mom's never been there. Not only gone, but she's never been there. And the staff claims that they have no knowledge of the, of the missing woman. According to the legend, a woman was taken ill while, while traveling in a foreign country with her daughter. While she lay down in a hotel bed, the daughter made a trip across town to pick up a needed prescription. When she returned, she found that both her mom and the hotel room that they were staying in had disappeared. No one remembered having seen either her or her mother. It's, uh, I like to analyze a little bit <clears throat> because I think urban legends are created with a motif or, or with, a, with a message, underlining message in, in, in the back. 
as a way to warn us of a certain behavior that can have consequences, you know? <clears throat> like, for example, don't pick up hitchhikers. Um, you know, that, that's... Uh, they always have, like, something in the background that tends to help us or avoid us a situation. Don't You know, don't talk to strangers or... There's always been, and this particular message, what do I get from it? I get the fact that if, if you have a sick relative, not to leave them alone. And because, you know, if the, even though the daughter made something worthy of her trip to pick up medication, when she came back, she was gone. So that's uh, maybe, and you have to also take into consideration the folklore and the way that uh, children are supposed to behave in certain communities. So maybe in France, uh, if you leave your parents or if you don't contact your parents while they're sick, it's seen as something that's naughty or a no-no uh, as far as like the society uh, society rules. So this would be a, an urban legend that would emphasize the fact that hey, like we don't leave our parents that are sick by themselves. According to the quote investigator website Urban Legend Research, uh, the author of the earliest known instance of this particular legend was Nancy Vincent McClellan, who wrote it, uh, a version of this in an article titled A Mystery of the Paris Exposition in the Philadelphia Inquirer dated November 14, 1897. Uh, in, this particular, in this particular version, at the end, the daughters told the truth by a French policeman about her mom's death from disease. The quote... Uh, investigator and taylor blake who was the author also found a version of the legend in the detroit free press in 1898 titled porch tales disappearance of mrs neeb which designated kenneth herford as the author of that particular story it is theorized that kenneth herford was a pen name for carl harriman okay i don't know what that means there's also uh, multiple variations of the story itself and as far as like popular culture there are several stories that have been inspired or several novels i should say that have been inspired by this particular uh urban legend and um yeah it's pretty substantial there's even a movie called flight plan in 2005 that i haven't seen and uh this was featured in a fox television and program beyond belief back in 2002 and it actually claimed that this this story was the truth interesting huh don't leave your parents alone when they're sick. Let's go to Germany now. Just to hop and skip away from France. This is called the German Corpse Factory. The German Corpse Factory, or I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, I, I think that German is extremely difficult to pronounce. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to give it a, a try. This is called Cadaver. Verwensun Guts and Salt Carcass Utilization Factory. Sorry for all my German listeners. Also sometimes called the German Corpse Rendering Works or the Tallow Factory. It was one of the most notorious anti-German atrocity propaganda stories that circulated actually in World War War One. In the post-war years, investigations into Britain and France revealed that these stories were false. Okay, according to the story, the German Corps factory was a special installation supposedly operated by the Germans in which, because fats were so scarce in Germany due to the British naval blockade, 
German battlefield corpses were rendered down for fat, which was then used to manufacture nitro, nitroglycerine, candles, lubricants, and even boot powder or boot dubbin. It was supposedly operated behind the front lines by the DAVG. I'm not going to try to spell that, but otherwise the German Waste Utilization Company. So the way the Germans would uh, do it, they would collect their deceased soldiers and they would be uh, utilized um, to provide the, the things that were made unavailable due to the blockade. Historian Pierce Brendan has called it the most appalling atrocious history or story of World War One, while journalist Philip Knightley has called it the most popular atrocious story of the war. Um, John Charteris, the British former chief of army intelligence, allegedly stated in a speech that he had invested invented the story, excuse me, for propaganda purposes, while the principal aim of getting the Chinese to join the war against the Germans. This was widely believed in the 30s and was actually used by the Nazis as part of their own anti-British propaganda. So they would, uh, you know, the Nazis would tell, hey, these Brits, they invented this weird story about us doing World War One. Do you guys tolerate that? Let's get together and go to war with them again. That's my English translation of a German speech, if you will. Recent scholars do not credit the claim to Charteris as creating the story. Um, propaganda historian Randall Marlin says that the real source of the story is to be found in the pages of the Northcliffe Press, referring to newspapers owned by Lord Northcliffe. Adrian Gregory presumes that the story originated from rumors that have been circulating for years and that it was not invented by any individual. The corpse rendering factory was not the invention of a diabolical propagandist. It was a popular folktale or urban myth which had been circulated for months and I receive by any official notice. Yeah, but always somebody has to come up with it, right? But that's pretty, um, I mean, it's funny, but for the, for the 1920s, World War II started, I believe it started in 1916 to 1918, but this was like the worst thing you can talk about a a country, you know? People saying they were appalled or they were astonished that somebody and then and nowadays if you said that you know well no i guess they're right i mean if if, if word got to us that some kind of country that we're at odds at we used to there to see soldiers as means to fabricating supplies we'd probably be pretty appalled uh, appalled as well so yeah but it's a very interesting story nonetheless yeah so that's a german corpse factory uh, let's see here. Let's talk about the. This is we're gonna stay in Germany, right? So hold on to your passports. Book your Airbnb. We're staying here for another story. This is called the Lone Gunner of Fleschkiers. The Lone Gunner of Fleschkiers is possibly a mythical German officer who is credited with destroying up to sixteen British tanks at Fleschkiers, France during the first day of the Battle of Cambrai on the 20th of November, 1917. So that will put it in World War I. British tanks were generally successful in their attacks. Uh, on the 20th of November, um, at the flash here, they were not as successful. 
many were actually disabled by German artillery and the British Commander-in-Chief, um, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Hay, visited the battlefield two days later and was given an account by a British officer that stated that many of the tanks were destroyed by a single German artillery officer who had remained with his gun when his men fled and was killed at his post. <clears throat> Haig included the account in his March 1918 dispatch on the battle, provided a convenient excuse for the failure to progress at flesh cares, and as a reminder to his men the importance of close cooperation between infantry and the tanks. This story has been retold in various works after the war, though the British um, official history of the battle and other works have labeled it a myth in the post-war era. The Germans, particularly the Nazi party, were keen to celebrate the lone gunner as a hero, and efforts were made to identify him in 1929, a work by a fervent Nazi Lieutenant Erwin Zindler identified Utzen officer Johannes Joachim Theodore Kruger of Number 8 Battery, the 108th Field Artillery Regiment, as the lone gunner. This identification may be spurious. Kruger was badly wounded in the battle and died in British captivity on the 10th of December of set year. Former members of the 108 Field Artillery Regiment suggested um, another person, they suggested the fewer workers lutened Brenner commander of the 8th number 9 battery as a more likely candidate. So his unit was based at Mark Owen on the day of the action. Very cool. But it's funny how like somebody would make, uh, you know, if, if you're in the British Army uh, and you're fighting Germans, you, you're making a myth about this particular, you know, German Rambo, if you will, I don't think it would do a lot for you, for your side. It'll probably do a lot more for the morale of the opposite. Um, belligerent army more than it would do for you as people would be like man i can't believe this guy was so awesome the germans would say that and then the british would probably be afraid and be like man one person took us out maybe another person can do the same but anyway so urban myths for a reason correct okay let's see here where else can we visit uh, <clears throat> well i think we're gonna leave germany we're gonna leave germany Let's go to Poland. We'll just cross a little bit, a uh, couple of hundred miles. Depends on where you are. This is called this is called the Kraina Gritspo TV. This is a Polish urban legend. The Kraina Gritspo TV, translated to Mushroom Land TV, is a Polish artistic universe created by one Victor Streborg and actually published on a YouTube channel. The core element of the Kraina Gitzbo or the Mushroom Land TV is a surreal psychological horror web series called Smile Guide or Poratsky Smichu with subtitles in several languages including English, German, Czech, Russian and Italian and it became very popular in different countries. The basic plot of this YouTube channel uh, is a show without really a concrete plot if you will. Uh, the story is based on the theme of mushrooms and the undefined uh, eponymous land in which the main character, a teenage girl named Agatha, or Agatha, is located. She is actually the host of an imaginary educational show called Porodasnik Umishu, or the fictional channel Craig Grisbo TV. 
Her friends is an animated squirrel named Malo Malgozia with an alter ego named Tufel, Germany for the devil, and German for the devil. So you have this little girl who has a channel in which it's like a magical mushroom land, and then she has uh, her own self part of the show, and then she has an Im imaginary character of a squirrel that has a dual personality. One of them is, I guess, a, a friendly squirrel, and then she had an alter ego named be twofold which is a, a devil sort of squirrel the program is uh, interrupted by interludes with statements from agatha's mother <clears throat> who is anonymous to the viewer she explains her daughter's stories and her inability to contact her <clears throat> excuse me the result of a fact from the past that is incomprehensible to the viewer so the mom narrates um during interludes and the mom attempts to explain what is what's going on with her daughter behind the scenes and uh, the fact that she's unable to contact her <clears throat> excuse me guys other episode episodic characters are girls carolina justinia and hasenputh from um from bitum i guess that's a town in yeah that's a town in poland there's also a grown man named, uh, nicknamed uh, Jeans Man, and the viewer learns about the plot through five full-fledged episodes, a short video posted on the channel. So, the reason for creating the series was Witzberg, uh, Victor Strieber's love for work that disturbs Ben's reality, plays on the recipient's predictions and destroys them. It resulted from research interest in memes and virals and form artistic exploration. Very interesting. I'm sure that you guys can still, still pretty much available. There's five episodes. They started being released in 2013 and they concluded in 2017. Actually, episode three was never released. So there's technically just five episodes. Yeah, that's, that's, um, <clears throat> I don't know if that would qualify as, as urban legend because it, it does, it's tangible, so it exists, but we'll just go with it. That was Poland. Let's see with another Poland uh, story here. This is called the Xerxes Reservoir Monster. Before that, you know what, let me tend to... Okay, so that, not a lot of comments tonight. Figures is probably a little bit too late. Um, I think I'm going to just stick, perhaps I'm going to stick to the 8 o'clock hour as opposed to the nine o'clock here in the in the west coast although i did not announce it today maybe we'll see but um this is called the zerze reservoir monster it's a fictional lake monster that uh, according to an urban legend lives in the zerze reservoir near the city of warsaw poland the creature was invested by a journalist as a local equivalent to the legend of the Loch Ness Monster and was for the first time mentioned in the media in the 1980s. The creature was invented. Um, it was for the first time mentioned in the media in the 80s in the Latsosi Radium radio edition of Polki Radio Program 1. The sighting of the monster has been reported for several years since the edition. Some media had published the interview with people who allegedly saw the creature and just posted pictures mean to visualize the possible look of the monster. Eventually, it was revealed that the story of the monster had been fabricated by journalists. So people just jumped on the gun. They said, hey, there's a monster here. They're like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. I got pictures. 
Dirty water present in the lake may lead to believe that the monster has consumed sewage. Oh boy. The topic of the monster lost popularity after the sewage treatment plan had been built nearby, leading to improvement of the water quality. In 2007, the municipality of this particular city, uh, together with uh, the two of Dobry Humor Satire magazine, organized a contest for the best satirical drawing of the monster. I wonder who won. Yeah, Polish, you guys have some twisted stuff out there, man. Sorry to say. A weird kid's tale and then some created monster. Pretty weird. Let's see. We'll do a few more as we kind of heading into the hour. Um, let's go to the let's go to the UK. This is called the 999 phone charging myth or urban legend. The triple nine phone charging myth is an urban legend that claims that if a mobile phone has low battery, then if you dial 999 or on or any regional emergency number, so akin to 911, charges to the phone will be made so that it has more power. So long story short, your phone's running out of power. You press 999 and automatically releases sort of like a default backup mechanism with the phone that adds, um, I don't know, let's say 20%. This was confirmed, confirmed as untrue. That's funny. It doesn't have to be confirmed untrue. I'm sure a lot of people had, they did that and they didn't find anything. But anyways, I digress. This was confirmed by uh, as untrue by several British police forces who publicly cited the dangers of making such calls. Yeah, I don't condone any of this. It's just silly. You can tie up the lines um, and prevent people from that having a real need for police and emergency services from getting through. So do not practice this. The basis for belief uh, was a feature of BlackBerry phones. <clears throat> if the battery level was too low, the phone automatically locked down phone features and shut down the phone radio for all calls except for emergency services. People discovered that if they dialed 999, then immediately hung up, it would overwrite the shutdown for several minutes so that the phone calls could be made. The belief seemed to have originated in BlackBerry forums around 2012. A related belief arose in 2015 that telling Siri on an iPhone to change my phone to 100% would cause the phone to call emergency services a secret safety code. <clears throat> This was later traced to a bug in Apple programming that was fixed within a day. The myth continued to spread on social media as a prank. In 2013, at the Derbyshire Constabulary released a press release telling people not to believe the claim that calling 999 charged the battery. They cited that for every silent or aborted 999 call received, the operator have to call the person back to make sure there is no emergency. These silent calls waste police time which can potentially block response to a real emergency bedshire police <clears throat> bedfordshire police also released information asking people not to call triple nine except for an emergency as they stated that in the last six months of 2013 they had an increase in hoax triple nine calls from people believing urban legend other sources supplemented these press releases by stating that misusing the 999 number is illegal. They also stated that the police could cut off telephones being used for the abuse of 999 services. When I was a little kid, I remember um, in the 80s, calling 911 was like a big, big, big deal. Like you wouldn't even, 
you know, if you ever call 911, it's something like you would report to your friends, be like, hey, you know, yesterday I actually dialed 911 because such and such, like, I, you know, there was a car accident outside my window or, you know, somebody fell in my house. So people would be like, wow, I can't believe you actually called 911. And I remember when I was, uh, I must have been 12 or 13. My friend and I were so curious that we actually called 911 to wish them a happy new year. <laughs> we were New Year's Day, you know, it will probably be like 12, 10 at night. Uh, and then we decided to call 911 to tell the operator Happy New Year. Um, from my remembering of that particular call, the operator was quite happy, but hung up pretty promptly. We were like, I just want to tell you guys Happy Happy New Year. Take care. And so that was our first experience calling 911. But yeah, don't... Um, don't do that. It's not a funny thing to do as you can block people. Anyways, guys, <clears throat> was an eventful, not interesting stream today. I'm glad that uh, Mr. Horsehair joined us. We should have some more fun stuff with him in the future. And I really like the this thing about exploring urban legends. Uh, I think it's uh, it's fun and it's uh, it gives you a little di different insight into how people throughout the world you know, tail, uh, tend to spread disinformation as a way to maybe uh, get a point across or a societal norm across. Let's see. So with that being said, oh, here we go. Widow, how are you, buddy? <laughs> Dial 999, Sergeant Schultz for Hogan Zero. That's right. Back in the day, there were strange numbers all kids knew about, like Dial-A-Joke. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, I remember dial well, this is before my my Christian days. I remember back in the day, you had your your naughty lines that um, you would call and, and probably talk to a middle-aged woman in the middle of Kansas doing her laundry. There was a lot of yeah, there was a lot of that that type of phone numbers, and there was um, there was the there was a, a, a particular number you can call where it would give you the time. Then. Like you said, dial a joke was very big. I remember that. And then we had a movie, movie phone, movie phone came out in the, I think probably the mid nineties and uh, movie phones was a service that would give you basically, you would enter your zip code and it would give you a rundown of the movies that were playing in nearby theaters and the times, you know, cause we didn't have internet at one point in time. Can you guys believe that? No internet. And so the only there was two ways for you to find out the times, or three ways. You could either call the theater, you can check your local newspaper, or you could just call movie phone. I remember it was a thank you for calling movie phone, dial one, uh, and you'd be like, if you want to watch this movie, press one. And it was, that's like how it sounded. It would be like, let's see what movie came out in the nineties. Um, I'm mean, not the nineties, like the two thousands. Be like. Pulp Fiction. If you want to watch Pulp Fiction, press 9. And then you press 9, it goes, Pulp Fiction. And it'll be times, available times. 5.15, showing. 6.14, showing. And I think you had the option to either purchase tickets through them or, or just kind of go to the theater, which was sort of a nuisance as to the way that we go to the theater now because now it's like you can pick your seat. You can go online and pick a seat. So you can show up late to the movie theater knowing that you're not going to have anybody sitting in your seat. But back in the day when there was like a blockbuster movie coming out, 
man, you better show up early. I worked at a, <laughs> I worked at what, what back in the day used to call, the, it was called the Cineplex, okay? And this was probably the largest uh, movie theater in LA. And this cine, the Cineplex used to sit on top of the Universal Studios Hill. Have you guys heard of Universal Studios, Universal Studios Tour? Well, there was a, a, a movie theater still there now. At the time that I worked, it was called the Cineplex. And I think we had like 24 screens. So this thing was huge. And so, I don't know, a movie would come out uh, and uh, people would start lining up hours before the movies. And usually like the, the biggest theater, I think it was like Theater 1 and 12, people would just uh, stand in line for hours waiting for, for them to get a ticket. Obviously, you got a ticket and you run and you got your seat and then you would have, or you have a friend of yours go get, uh, you know, get you the popcorn and everything else. Um yeah, so that was that was fun. So I used to work at this particular theater, and I remember all the lines, um, <laughs> the lines, how big they were. But now it's like you can purchase your ticket online, and uh, you can pick your seat. And strangely enough, when I grew up in South America, that's that's the way they used to do it too. You had to physically show up to the movie theater. So let's say you and I decided to watch a movie. Let's say we wanted to watch Jaws. So you and I will go to the movie theater, would swing by about, you know, noon or one, and we say, yeah, we want to watch Jaws at the 7 o'clock showing. So what they would do, they have in the back, the, the person selling the, the tickets for the movie theater, they would have a, a, a plan, if you will, uh, of the movie theater itself. And so every little seat in the theater had a little hole. And inside of the hole, they had this rolled up little pieces of paper that would tell you the seat number and the seat where you will be sitting. So you would say, yeah, I want to get two seats for the seven o'clock showing of Jaws. So the lady would turn her back and they would be like, where, where would you like to sit? And I'd be like, uh, give me those two seats there. Uh, yeah, row H, seat seven and eight. She would pull out those two little papers and that would be your entrance to the movie theater at that particular time. So those sounds kind of like uh, old school, and it was old school, but it was a good method as opposed to you showing up uh, to the theater and then having to wait in line for a long time. I remember, um, so when I worked there, yeah, that, that was uh, high school days. I had a blast. I worked there for a few months, and uh, I remember when I first started working there, people would all often eat, they would always be munching on, on snacks, you know, and I would be like, well, kind of thinking to yourself like do we get discounts on snacks or why do you guys eat so much what do you guys get the snacks from you they were always munching on uh, licorice or gummy bears or these like so the, the the sweet sweet and sour little little candies and it turns out that these people were you know these people where they would clean the theaters uh, if somebody left over uh, you know half of their bag of m&ms or half of the bags of uh sour patch kits they would just kind of you know hoard them and just start munching i thought it was the most disgusting thing in the world i go dude how can you guys do that that's nasty you don't know what you know whose hands have been on the candy you don't know what the heck happened a few months later into my days of working there my pockets were full with candy <laughs> and i remember anytime you for for me the biggest score was the sour patch kits sometimes people would buy these huge bags and they would probably just eat like you know 10 to 15 of them so my biggest catch was to find a cabbage patch packet, cabbage, sour patch packet of, of candy. I mean, I would love it. And I stooped down even to <laughs> the lowest level of, of mooching when I used to, uh, I used to engage in eating the popcorn too. So 
Yeah, sometimes when you first check into a job, you see something as being disgusting, and by the time you get used to it, you start doing it yourself. So, yeah, I engaged in a lot of uh, pre-opened candy, and I'm still around. So, that was my days working at the at the Cineplex back then in good old uh, Studio City, California. The sour. I want to go to Widow. <laughs> Widow, we can relate, man. Yeah. Phones, think about it. Yeah, the internet, those, yeah, Thomas Guides. I remember those yellow pages, pay phones, rotary phones. Heck yeah, we used to have a, a single rotary phone in my house. And it was downstairs nonetheless. And so when the phone rang at like midnight, you had to like get out of bed, walk all the way down, and pick up the phone. And uh, <laughs> as I grew up, and then you start dating, and then you start, you know, fancying the phone calls from your, from the ladies or whoever you kind of fell in love with in high school, you would have your own line in your room, which was like the ultimate goal, you know. But often there was a single line that was shared in the whole entire household. So parents being parents, sometimes they would like maybe go to the bathroom at two and three o'clock in the morning and they would hear you speaking on the other side of the phone and that was a no-no and they would get on the other line. They wouldn't even come in your room and gently tell you, you know, put the phone away. It's time to go to sleep. No, they would get on the other line. They'd be like, what are you doing? Get off the phone. I don't know who you're talking with. Hang it up right now. And you'd be so embarrassed because you would have, you know, your crush on the other side and you would kind of snicker and be like, oh man, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta hang up. I'll see you at school tomorrow. And then you would run into that corniness of, of fresh puppy love when you would say, no, but you hang up first. And they would say, no, you hang up first. Okay, let's hang up at the same time. <laughs> and then you'd be you'd do a little countdown, three, two, three, two, one, and then both of you guys would try to hang up, and then somebody would remain on the line. So those were the good old days of the 80s. 97 anything before the 2000 where you had phones and then we went from having single phones at home to having a beeper or a pager and for those it's a device that sends out a signal um a pager was a device that, that you carried on yourself that would send out a signal and the signal basically was a phone number Later on, I think they had the capability to send the message, but at the beginning, it was just a phone number. So you would be driving around or going to school, and all of a sudden, your beeper goes off, and then you would look at it, and it would have a number on it. <clears throat> so you would call it, and that was the way of somebody reaching you. Your parents would be like, hey, what are you doing? I want to pick you up from school. But uh, you wouldn't know where the number was. You wouldn't, if you, if you obviously, if you didn't recognize it. So my friends and I devised uh, a plan to attach a three-digit code at the end of the number, so that way they would know where the pager would, would come from. So my 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 triple my, my digit was 007. So I would put my house number or, well, the house number they would probably know and recognize. But I would put my, uh, let's say I was at my aunt's house, I would put my aunt's house number and then I would put 007 at the end of it. So that way my friends know that it was me calling. So those are the pagers. Um, and then we had uh, Thomas Guides, which were basically uh, like a like a map. You know how you can easily go on your phone and click on an address and it will tell you how to get there? Well, you know, back in the day, you had to look at a physical map. So you would go in the back and you would look for a street name, Maple Avenue. Uh, and then it would have, uh, let's say you were looking for 6511 Maple Avenue. Look in the back, Maple Avenue, um, kind of narrow down the numbers and then it would, it would be a grid. So it will be like H1, 
uh, on page 145. So you go to page 145, you look at the letter H, number one, and right there you would have Maple Street Drive. And so you would have to coordinate your way on how to get there. So I utilize that a lot because I used to drive a lot. And actually, my only self-inflicted car accident that I had uh, when I rear-ended somebody was because of the Thomas. I was looking at the Thomas guy distractedly on the freeway trying to find an exit, and I hit somebody in the back. It was a very mild accident, but the people in front of the car got out. Like, it, they had just experienced, uh, you know, uh, 10, 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. But, uh, yeah, so that was the Thomas Guide. And the Yellow Pages were was basically your Google where, you know, you want to look for a plumber, you would... Uh, <laughs> Go in the yellow pages and look for plumbers. And the funny thing is that they were alphabetically, in the yellow pages, a business would be alphabetically uh, ordered, right? So that's why sometimes you, you have a lot of A1 or like AAA, you know, laundry mats or like AAA Chinese restaurants, because obviously they will be the first ones to pop up when you do a search. You want to call, you don't want to have any name with like, you know, Z's. Uh, Mexican restaurant because then nobody would call you. They would probably call somebody within the first page. <laughs> so that's why if there's businesses with a one or with an A, they, they, they were probably around at the time of, of uh, phone phone books. And then what else did the, the widow, he opened up a historical lesson here. He the, Yeah, the rotary phones. These were phones that were, had a dial in the front that resembled like a, a clock or a, wa a clock face and they had the numbers lined up. So in order for you to call, <clears throat> you stuck your finger in this little holes for a corresponding number and you span all the way from left to right and then you simply let go. And so if you had a long number to be called and you screwed up and you put your finger in the wrong hole, you would have to start all over again. Um, the rotary phones. Yeah. Well, things change. I wonder if our kids will be, you know, in 50 years from now, making podcasts about, remember the days when we had actually to look up stuff on a phone? I can't believe we actually carried phones around. They probably have some kind of, God, God forbid, some kind of implant. Please no. <laughs> but anyways, guys, thank you for being part of the show. Thank you for the interaction. It's always appreciated. Um, I'll be back tomorrow, I think, at 8. We'll keep the 8 o'clock time, time slot for now. Might move it to 9, I don't know. But we'll just keep it. We'll keep the nine the 8 o'clock. So tomorrow I'll be back at 8. And um, I wish you guys have a beautiful Friday. Last day of work for many of us. Uh, be good to one another. Be kind. And have fun. God bless you guys. Hopefully, uh, some of you guys, is payday tomorrow. So you can have an awesome weekend. With that being said, I'm your host, Doc, here at Strange Days, wrapping up another show on the February 22nd, 2024. God bless you guys. Take care.
Thank you.